Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. Movies can be whimsical, terrifying, life-altering, culture-changing experiences where the big ideas we take up at On Being show up in the heart of our lives. This hour, we experience this through seven lives and seven movies, from The Wizard of Oz to Black Panther and even, I can't believe I'm saying this, The Exorcist. So get out the popcorn for this upcoming flavor of the new season of our On Being Studios podcast, This Movie Changed Me. A love letter to movies and their power to change life and culture. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. This Movie Changed Me is hosted by our very own movie-loving executive producer, Lily Percy, who will also walk us through this hour. Groundhog Day centers around Phil Connors, this grumpy, cynical weatherman, played by Bill Murray, who finds himself stuck in a time loop that no one else is aware of, living the same day over and over again, waking up every morning to the same song. I got you, babe. I got you, babe. They say I love Morning! Uh, see the groundhog? Yeah. Think it'll be an early spring. Didn't we do this yesterday? I don't know what you mean. No. Don't mess with me, pork chop. What day is this? It's February 2nd. Groundhog Day. As the movie unfolds, Phil slowly goes from being confused to angry to self-absorbed and depressed before finally accepting his situation and the people around him. Chances are that if you're a Bill Murray fan or you grew up in the 90s, you've seen Groundhog Day. But I guarantee you that you've never looked at this movie the way that writer Naomi Alderman does. She wrote the highly buzzed about novel, The Power. And Naomi says that even though on the surface Groundhog Day is a comedy, she also sees layers and layers of depth and practical transformative life lessons. Roger Ebert, when he reviewed this movie for the second time, so, you know, 2005, years later, I don't know if you've read that review, but he says... This beautiful, beautiful, um, just beautiful words around Phil. He says, Phil undergoes his transformation, never loses his edge. He becomes Mm. a better Phil, not a different Phil. Tomorrow will come, and whether or not it is always February 2nd, all we can do about it is be the best person we know how to be. The good news is that we can learn to be better people. There's a moment when Phil tells Rita, when you stand in the snow, you look like an angel. Mm. The point is not that he has come to love Rita. It is that he has learned to see the angel. Yes. Oh, that is gorgeous. Roger Ebert, prophet. <laughs> prophet, prophet, testify. And and he he continues to be a little bit selfish, which I love. Yes, you know? exactly. This is a realistic portrayal of a man, of a human being. Yeah. Watching it, watching it again, I, I was particularly struck by the way that he isn't a monster at the start and he's not an angel at the end. Yeah. It's a realistic softening of someone who kind of always knew. I mean, it's about a midlife crisis, right? Yeah. It's about what it means to be a good person, about what it means to try to help, about what it means to always be growing. 
And you couldn't, I mean, the movie never answers how this happened to him, which is wonderful. One thing you could suggest is like this thing that happens to him is something that he needed. He wanted it. He called to it. He asked for it. Mm. Maybe. Let's, yeah. that's, that's a thought that I had about it whilst watching it. Can I also talk about, you know, the title of the thing is about a movie that the podcast is about a movie that changed your life. So I saw this when I was 18. I must have watched it. I must have watched it at least once a year since then. So that's at least 25 times. Wow. <laughs> and And perhaps more. Uh, I feel like there were times when I was watching it more than once a year because I felt like it had some answers for me hmm. about what constituted a good life. So how how watching it those 25 times then, every time do you find new answers for yourself? How does it yeah. come into your life? I mean, it's interesting. I feel like maybe now I have started to find the edges of it hmm. in terms of, well, what is if I believe this, then what is really worth doing with my life? Yeah. What is worth doing is stuff that somehow works on myself, my inner self, whether that's by psychotherapy or learning new skills or reading great books or improving my sensitivity towards the world, or that it's trying to help. There's a thing that I do sometimes. It sounds weird, but it's sort of a spiritual practice. Um, every now and then when I feel like I have either been through some hard times or that I've somehow become a little bit too blasé about my life, I spend a month every single day going to a place that I have not been before. And you can do this while traveling, obviously, but it is much more effective if you do it very, very close to where you live. Hmm. So like, things that are within half an hour of where you live. In other words, you could always have gone there, but you have just never bothered to get off your beaten track. You've never, ever gone to have a look in that tiny little weird art gallery that you pass by every day on your walk to work. You've never gone to sit in that park. You've never gone to be in that church. You've never tried out the baguette from that cafe. And... So sometimes I do this every day for a month, just literally, it can be five minutes pop in. But suddenly I have a sense of the incredible richness around me of things that I have not have seen, but not really noticed. And at some point in that month, I will have what happens is I receive the benediction. That's what I call it, which is like at some moment, I will suddenly become aware of the incredible beauty and richness of everything around me. So I would look at a brick wall and suddenly be completely struck by the difference and the, the thereness, the thisness of every single brick in that wall and how much has gone into just even creating that single wall. And then look, so I want to put windows in there and look at the plants and the you know, there's a little bee that just buzzed past me. And when you look at the world that way, when you look at the world with the Phil Connors eyes, when you go th right through the sense of ennui, through the despair, right through to the other side, and all you can see is how amazing it is to just be allowed to be alive right now. Is this what you do with eternity? Now you know. That's not the worst part. What's the worst part? 
The worst part is that tomorrow you will have forgotten all about this and you'll treat me like a jerk again. No. It's all right, I am a jerk. No, you're not. It doesn't make any difference. I've killed myself so many times. I don't even exist anymore. Well, sometimes I wish I had a thousand lifetimes. I don't know, Phil. Maybe it's not a curse. It just depends on how you look at it. Gosh, you're an upbeat lady. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to know it's been a really nice day for me. Me too. And maybe, if it's not too boring, we could do it again sometime. I hope so. The first time that I saw Contact, I was blown away. I had never seen a movie that described all the questions and all the mysteries I felt around God and science, and even love. Contact is adapted from the novel by the scientist Carl Sagan, and it tells the story of Ellie, played by Jodie Foster. She's an astronomer who works for SETI, an organization trying to find life on other planets. Many people in the science community don't take her work seriously, because it's the kind of science you can't prove. But Palmer Joss, this kind of spiritual pastor, New Agey seeker played by Matthew McConaughey, understands what Ellie is going through. The relationship between Ellie and Palmer is so important because it illustrates the divide and parallels between science and faith. And this is something that my next guest, high school teacher Drew Hammond, felt deeply when he was a teenager and continues to shape how he interacts with his own teenage students. It feels very much like a a depiction of all the things that I was struggling with mm. when I was a teenager, which was, you know, uh, how come I feel alone mm. a lot? And how come I can't feel the things that other people seem to be feeling at ease, mm. right? How come I don't have that same kind of peace that people that go to church on a regular basis feel? And how come I, I can't feel that connection that everybody else feels mm. to something um, and so I think, you know, the the story of somebody exploring their own atheism is that's a hard story to tell in a lot of ways. And it's also just not a super common story to tell. Yeah. And and so seeing her and and her strength and her convictions about what she believes, that was one thing. But then the other part was was that this idea that we can um, we can search for questions. And as long as we are continuing to search for questions, it doesn't matter what the questions are. Yeah. Um, and the answers are are secondary. They're not. They're just not as important as the fact that we are searching. Mm -hmm. And so when you know when I when I saw the movie, um, you know, I saw it at the absolute perfect age. Uh, you know, I think I saw it when I was eighteen, and I got permission to just know that that the search was enough, mm. and that. I don't have to believe anything that anybody is telling me, which when you're a teenager is like the greatest permission. Yes, right? it um, really is. And that and that I also will probably spend my life changing what I believe. And as long as I stay curious and as long as I stay active in in questioning, then I will I'll be okay. Mm. And I think that's what you see is you see Jodie Foster over however much time in the movie, you see her character changing what she believes and ultimately being better for it. Ooh, a little chilly out here. Yeah, this is nice. 
I got one for you. What do you got? Occam's Razor. You ever heard of it? Uh, Occam's Razor? It sounds like some slasher movie. No, Occam's Razor. It's a basic scientific principle. And it says, all things being equal, the simplest explanation tends to be the right one. Makes sense to me. All right. So what's more likely? Thank you. An all-powerful, mysterious god created the universe and then decided not to give any proof of his existence. Or that he simply doesn't exist at all. And that we created him so we wouldn't have to feel so small and alone. I don't know. I couldn't imagine living in a world where God didn't exist. You know? I wouldn't want to. How do you know you're not deluding yourself? I mean, for me, I, I need proof. Proof. Did you love your father? What? Your dad, did you love him? Yes, very much. Prove it. So as you've gotten older mm. and continued to watch this movie, because much like myself, I know you watch it over and over again. About once a year. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what do you continue to learn from it? What are you learning as you grow together with the movie? As a teacher, one of the challenges I have is that I have to allow kids to to enter the classroom bringing whatever it is they've brought with them. Mm. And so I have kids that believe radically different things than I mm. believe and that think about, you know, some pretty important things uh, very differently. And I have to, you know, I cannot think that something is wrong with them because mm. they they grew up with a different set of experiences. Mm. Um, and that's been, you know, that's been one of the hardest things for me as a teacher to to wrap my head around is that mm. all I can do is give them the space to ask questions and to know that those questions are valid and try and encourage them as much as possible to question everything that they believe, knowing that if it's good, like they'll come back to it. Mm. And if it's not, then they'll find something better, you know? Yeah. Um, and in some ways that is an incredibly frustrating thought that like that we just might not ever know. Um, but like if we just embrace that as that's what the journey looks like, that we will just always be surrounded by questions, then uh, what a cool gift that is to, mm. to know that like there may be things that happen in our lifetimes that we cannot possibly foresee. We might get a message from an alien race. <laughs> or, Using math. Right, yeah. Um, that that might change everything we know about mm. ourselves and how great would that be? Mm. How cool would that be if that happened that all of a sudden the world had to totally rethink everything that we know? I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, This Movie Changed Me is back. Before I saw The Exorcist, everything I'd read or heard about this movie over the years was about how shocking and scary it was. But no one ever told me how good it was. And if you haven't seen it, you might be as surprised as I was to discover that it truly is a masterpiece in movie making. The Exorcist takes place in Georgetown in Washington, D.C., and tells the story of a 12-year-old girl and her demonic possession. But the true horror comes in watching her mother attempt to help her. She goes to doctors, psychiatrists, 
before finally turning to the Catholic Church as a last resort. Movie critic Mark Kermode is, for me, the only person that holds a candle to Roger Ebert. He hosts the podcast Kermode on Film and also co-hosts Kermode and Mayo's Film Review from the BBC, one of my favorite podcasts. He's really the foremost expert on The Exorcist. He's made documentaries about it, he's written about it, and he even became friends with the director, William Friedkin, and the screenwriter, William Peter Blatty. Mark was too young to watch the movie when it was first released, and he spent six years obsessing about it before finally seeing it at the cinema. So I have to ask, what toll does that take on you as a kid? And also, how do your parents react to watching you obsess in this way? I mean, did they say you can't see this? I mean, I believe you grew up Anglican, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, well, I, was, I was brought up as a Methodist. Methodist. And then, I'm, I'm, I'm Anglican now because there's, well, I'm C of E now, so, um, which is Anglican. Um, there's a joke about the Church of England, which is you don't lose your faith. You just can't remember where you left it. Um, <laughs> so my... my um, my parents knew that I was that cinema was the thing that I was interested in, but they also knew that I was really, really interested in, in horror. And when the horror thing began, I would sort of I'd come downstairs, at, uh, you know, at night and watch um, like old Hammer reruns on our black and white television with the volume turned down so that my mum and dad couldn't hear. <laughs> and they they weren't down on it in any way. Mm-hmm. So I think what they thought was. If you're interested in anything, that's a good thing. And I've always said this, you know, people, there's a great kind of vilification of horror movies. Oh, Mm. they're bad for kids or they do terrible things. If you are a slightly lonely child, um, horror movies, they do speak to you. And I've met so many people over the years because I've spent a lot of time working in the field of horror films who have that same thing. They either work for you or they don't. And if they don't, you can't explain it. It's like if somebody says, what do you think of opera? I go, well, to me, opera is, it's, I can appreciate it, but it, I don't get the thing. Yeah, it doesn't speak to And it's to the you. same with horror movies. Mm. The difference is no one tells you that if you listen to opera, you're going to turn into a serial killer. You know, So if you were a bit of an outsider, horror movies were like your friends. You know. Yeah. I love the way, and I have to say, I, I'm such a huge fan of your writing, so I will be quoting you. you back to yourself a lot. I hope <laughs> you're comfortable you. with it. I, 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 as my wife once said, I don't fish for compliments, I trawl for them. <laughs> I love that. Well, I have, I have been, I confess, a person who has never really given horror its due. And reading you write about it, there's this wonderful way that you say, Uh, People talk endlessly about the damaging effects of horror movies, but too little is heard about the life-affirming power of being scared out of your mind and in those very rare cases out of your body. You ask me if I think there is more to this world than the grim realities of aging, disease, and death, of mourning and loss, and I will refer you to that first viewing of The Exorcist, during which my imagination took flight, my soul did somersaults, and the physical world melted away into nothingness around me. I don't think that there's a spiritual element to human life. I know it because I have experienced it firsthand and I have horror movies to thank for that blessing. <laughs> I love that. Tell me a little thank bit you. more about that experience, what you're talking about, that aliveness, that presence that you had um, being taken away by The Exorcist. That experience, you know, years later, I would talk to 
to Bill Blatty, who wrote The Exorcist. And it, it, Bill had some sort of conflicts about what the, how the film was received, what the film meant to people. Mm. He was very concerned that because certain key sequences had been taken out of it, that the message of it wasn't clear. And the message from his point of view was very clear. It is, it, it will all be all right in the end. God is in his heaven. There are angels mm. because there are demons. You know, if there are demons, then there are angels. Then he was very, very clear about it. And Bill was a very religious man. And that was what the story was about for him. But he said, uh, we were talking quite candidly at one point, and he said, the thing is, when you watch that film, you are alive. You know, you're having an experience. And whether that experience is good or bad, you are alive and you are aware of it. And what it means is that there is there is a thing that horror movies can do and to some extent this goes into you know roller coasters all that sort of stuff it makes you alive by confronting you with the spectacle of something else mm. but it's more than just oh you're you're experiencing something dangerous in a safe environment it is in the genuine sense of the word transcendent now from my point of view that kind of almost out-of-body experience that I had watching The Exorcist was wholly positive, wholly positive, because it was a form of transcendence. Mm. And there are moments when cinema does that to you, and it doesn't matter whether it's a horror movie or whether it's a love story or whether it's a thriller or a science fiction, it's something that makes you think there is more to this world than this chair that I'm sitting in mm. and this auditorium that I'm sitting in. Years later, I went to Georgetown, you know, and I walked up those steps and I walked to the front of where the house you know, should be. Obviously, it's different in real life. Mm -hmm. And again, it was that incredible feeling of I'm walking into something that I've already been into. And that deja vu, that is an uncanny experience. And uncanny experiences tell you that there's more to life than just this. Marvel superhero movies, but I admit that I don't expect a lot from them. But Black Panther changed all of that. It tells the story of Wakanda, an African country unlike any other, with advanced technology, rich and abundant resources, a black nation that is powerful and thriving, with characters that embody the complexity of black identity, something that we rarely see at the movies. These layers really spoke to Zaida Sherman when she saw Black Panther. Zaida works with college students, and when the movie premiered, she took them to go see it. Watching Black Panther with her students, she genuinely felt Wakanda welcoming them with open arms. What was the experience actually being in the theater, watching it, after all that anticipation? So, you know, like... 
if I tell somebody you got to come through looking like black excellence, I'm going to take it super serious. <laughs> so <laughs> like I had been planning my outfit for some time. My deceased grandmother, she was like super into fur coats. And so, you know, I'm rocking this like floor length mink coat and like very kind of reminiscent of coming to America. And I've got like a huge <laughs> necklace on and I got my fro picked out. And, and so like the students see me come in and they're like cheering me on oh, <laughs> and like really that. amping me up. So there was that, which was hilarious. But then just sitting in the theater seat and turning around, turning left and right, like panning all the way around and realizing that theater had to be 99% black viewers. Yeah. Um, which doesn't happen like a whole lot, right? (laughs) So that in itself was incredible because I think when you're a person of color, just in general, when you're in, when you're black specifically, what happens is you're very conscious of the white gaze on Mm. you. Um, You're very conscious of how how white folks are perceiving you and what they're going to do with that perception, Mm -hmm. whether it's they're going to weaponize it or they're going to, you know, I don't know, just there's a whole whole myriad of possibilities, right? But the feeling of that absence was complete freedom, I would say, just to be yourself and whatever reaction you have, like, if you laugh too loud, it's cool. You know why? Because <laughs> there's a theater full of black folks who would expect nothing less. Yeah. And one of the things you talk about um, is wanting what you wanted for your students that night. You write about it so beautifully. You say, I wanted my students to feel the elation of black possibility and freedom. I wanted my students to experience the sheer joy of seeing a movie for us and by us, all about what happens when black life thrives without exploitation and colonization. I wanted my students to see what happens when black thought, innovation, and beauty are the standards. That's so beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I meant that. I meant that. And as a side note, this is probably the only article I've written or the only piece I've ever written that... This emotionally, it was tough. I mean, I was crying writing some parts of that because the things that my students shared with me about their lives Mm. and about being black and the struggle of expressing themselves and being themselves comfortably and on all of the kind of shots that come out of them on a macro and micro level, like it's crazy. It's heartbreaking. It breaks people down. So... To have that experience with them, just to see what it looks like when you're free, like when you're carefree in your blackness or just when you're yourself in your blackness, that was really important to me because those students in particular, and that's not uncommon for a lot of a lot of schools in California, they're like super minorities, 3% mm. of a whole student body population. It's crazy, right? So I think my students they have that desire and and they want to learn more and they want to grow into whoever they're going to become as as black people. But there are so many barriers that prevent them from being able to do that in Mm -hmm. their lives. Um, So it was was pretty tough, but I just wanted them to, for one night, right, like (laughs) for two hours, 14 minutes, enjoy the film and whatever it does for you. Um, Whatever it does for you spiritually, whatever it does for you intellectually, whatever it does for you creatively, like let that seed be nurtured into whatever it can become. That was really important to me. 
You can hear wonderful, longer versions of all the conversations in this hour in Season 2 of On Being Studios' podcast, This Movie Changed Me, wherever podcasts are found. You can also, of course, listen again to this and all of the shows from On Being Studios at onbeing.org. Coming up, Seth Godin on The Wizard of Oz, Michael Strautmanis on The Wiz, and Monica Castillo on Coco. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. To learn more, subscribe to their newsletter, Possibilities, and discover the work Templeton supports on topics from curiosity and kindness to evolution, black holes, and the origins of life. Sign up at templeton.org forward slash possibilities. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, a new round of This Movie Changed Me, the special power of movies to change lives and transform culture. The Wizard of Oz is an iconic American movie, and according to the Library of Congress, the most watched movie in movie history. But in case you've never seen it, here's a quick refresher. A tornado hits a farmhouse somewhere in Kansas and transports Dorothy and her dog Toto to the magical land of Oz. There she meets good and bad witches, a scarecrow, a tin man, and a cowardly lion. And she must find her way home by following the yellow brick road to the great Wizard of Oz who rules all over the land. It sounds like a storybook fairy tale, but there's so much more underneath as the wise entrepreneur, author, and blogger Seth Godin knows. Uh, Roger Ebert is a film hero of mine, and I was reading his review of The Wizard of Oz, and he had so many beautifully perceptive things to say about it. Um, And he framed it in a way that I never thought about. Um, He says here that their elements in The Wizard of Oz powerfully fill a void that exists inside many children. For kids of a certain age, home is everything, the center of the world. But over the rainbow, dimly guessed at, is the wide earth, fascinating and terrifying. And I just wondered, when you were a kid, you know, what did you first perceive about that movie? For me, it's always been about the instigation. Hmm. That, you know, Dorothy was perhaps the only genuine, independent, young woman heroine in movies for decades and decades. Yeah, you've talked about how there's never been a teenage girl like her, right, in film in that way. Yeah, I mean, treated without misogyny, without sexualization, here is this person who's a hero. And the thing about it is, except for her accidentally killing both witches, everything else that happens in the movie happens because Dorothy instigates. Hmm. She says, let's go. Come on, let's go. He can help. We can go there. And that idea that a young person can take action is extraordinary. And the way it was juxtaposed with you know, the vaudeville stuff, with the fantasy stuff, with the munchkin stuff, mm-hmm. made it feel safer because it wasn't somebody taking action in your school or your playground. It was someone taking action in this idealized world. But what I took away 
the biggest thing I took away is it's up to us, and we could do it if we wanted to. Where's Kansas? That's where I live, and I want to get back there so badly, I'm going all the way to Emerald City to get the Wizard of Oz to help me. You're going to see a wizard? Mm-hmm. Do you think if I went with you, this wizard would give me some brains? I couldn't say. But even if he didn't, you'd be no worse off than you are now. Yes, that's true. But maybe you better not. I've got a witch mad at me, and you might get into trouble. Witch? <laughs> I'm not afraid of a witch. I'm not afraid of anything. Oh, Except a lighted match. I don't blame you for that. But I'd face a whole box full of them for the chance of getting some brains. Uh, won't you take me with you? Why, of course I will. Yeah, you know, Ebert says in his review later on, I'm just thinking about this as you're talking, that um, they're touching on the key lesson of childhood, which is that someday the child will not be a child, that home will no longer exist, that adults will be no help, because now the child's an adult and must face the challenges of life alone, but that you can ask friends to help you, and that even the Wizard of Oz is only human and has problems of his own. Wow. Yeah, there's there's so much to dissect here. Uh, you know, the idea that the wizard was a con man but a kind man with a golden heart yeah. is a f- another great juxtaposition. That humbug was a term that people used to use a lot in the P.T. Barnum days. Mm. And it was the idea that somebody was not only a fraud, but gleeful about it. That when you went to see a P.T. Barnum show, you knew there wasn't really a mermaid in the other room. And you were paying knowing that you were going to get fooled, and getting fooled was part of the deal. Mm. But it's interesting because when she finds out that she's been fooled by the wizard, she's not angry. I also, that struck me watching it again this week, was that she's very kind, and actually their interactions are very kind. Yeah, you know, Kansas life in those days, never having lived there and never been there then, you know, oh, your dog misbehaved, we're going to kill him. Oh, the house got blown over by a tornado, well, we'll just have to recover. Yeah. And because <laughs> life know, was so hard. It, it, yeah. Life was really hard. And I think that Dorothy's lack of bitterness throughout the entire movie, except when she's trying to protect Toto, again, gets under our skin. Mm. Now, there, there are a couple bits of background because I'm a, a marketer who looks at culture that I think need to be mentioned because the creation myth here is essential. Mm. When the movie came out, it was trying to chase after Snow White, which was the most successful movie ever made at the time. Mm-hmm. And 14 different people worked on the screenplay. Yeah, it was crazy. Than, to I, When I read that, exactly. I was like, oh my God, how did this even get made? Exactly. And five different people worked on directing it. The first director got pulled to go make Gone with the Wind. I mean, it was a complete accident that this movie even got made. And mm. when it came out, except for the New York Times, almost every critic hated it hated it. And so what we learn here is that you can create an act of genius without being a genius and <laughs> that the critics are usually wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and that the cultural aspect of we saw it in this new space on TV where it was optimized to make an impact. Again, there could only have been one movie that pulled that off and it happened to have been The Wizard of Oz. But what is so cool is that you can whistle a couple notes or bring up a line from it and the other people you're talking to will instantly know what you're talking about and that's what makes a culture a culture because of the wonderful things he does we're off to see the wizard the wonderful wizard of all. 
know you're 24 years old and you've never, never been, been south, south of 125th, 125th Street. Well, you haven't. <laughs> I can't see how going south of 125th Street ever made anybody's life better. And you're never going to know unless you try. Are you? I know getting out in that world ain't easy. But we'll always be here for you, Dorothy. And whatever your fears are, well, they'll be defeated just by facing up to them. Now, you take that new job and find a place for you and Toto. It's time for you to make a home of your own. When I think of home, I think of a place where there's love overflowing. The Wiz is a movie that I had actually never seen until I spoke with our next guest, Michael Straubmanis, a lawyer who worked in President Obama's administration and is currently the chief engagement officer for the Obama Foundation. I knew that The Wiz was a retelling of The Wizard of Oz story, that it starred Diana Ross's Dorothy, that it featured original music as well as celebrities like Michael Jackson, Lena Horne, and Richard Pryor, and that was kind of it. So watching it was a revelation, not just for the music, which is fabulous, but because in The Wiz, Dorothy is a 24-year-old Harlem school teacher who gets caught in the middle of a violent storm and is transported to a magical alternative version of 1970s New York. When Michael Straubmanis saw The Wiz for the first time at the movie theater, he was also amazed. Dorothy was part of a family like his, lived in a neighborhood like his, and as a young black boy growing up in the south side of Chicago, watching all of his icons on screen in this way made him feel seen. Watching it for the first time, I mean, I was struck, first of all, with how perfect it begins, right? It begins with a Thanksgiving dinner where everyone's Mm -hmm. coming together. And what a beautiful way to introduce this whole story. In a lot of ways, it felt a lot more um, familiar to me than the way The Wizard of Oz actually begins with Dorothy, (laughs) Um, the old version. Yeah, this one just felt like home. It feels like you're establishing who this person is, who this Dorothy is, and you really get a sense of her, um, you know, in this Diana Ross character. And the other thing that really just blew me away was blackness. I mean, every actor is black, and it's amazing. Peak blackness. And I know people say that these days. In the era of Black Panther, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard to remember that we've been here before. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was 10, so I wasn't going to go see Shaft or Superfly. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> but I could go see The Wiz. Yeah. And, you know, it's Motown, it's Barry Gordy, it's Michael Jackson, it's Diana Ross. Every actor, as you said, in that movie is black. And, you know, when I was a kid, and even as I've seen the movie over the years, it really is so much about that Thanksgiving dinner that the movie begins with because mm-hmm. it just does feel comfortable. Yeah. Um, it does feel like home, you know, and it was so much of what life was like then. That's what our Thanksgiving dinners were like. Um, every family member is represented in there. You know, there's like yeah. the young kids, <laughs> the new baby, the old folks playing checkers and arguing with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the that's that black experience that I remember and that, you know, I would never see on TV or in the movies. And so to go to the movies and just to see yourself and your life mm-hmm. reflected on screen, I just think... Uh, it happens too rarely, and particularly then it happened too rarely for black folks. And so when it happened, it was big. 
Well, one of my favorite scenes in the movie actually comes toward the end when, you know, the scarecrow and the lion and the tin man, they've all realized, you know, that they had everything they needed all along. And like Diana Ross is talking to uh, Richard Pryor, who plays the Wiz. I was like, oh, my God, Richard Pryor. I mean, Pryor? come on. I know. When Richard Pryor's, <laughs> when he like, you see his big eyes come uh, up. Crying? From... <laughs> when he's crying at the end? Uh, I was like, oh, my God. There's a super amount of crying in the Wiz. Like, yeah, and a lot of depth. Tin makes people well. From oh, yeah. <laughs> for sure. But he has crying. a really thoughtful sequence with her where he says to her, you know, because he's looking at these three characters, the Scarecrow, the Lion, and the Tin Man, and they've been healed in many ways. And so he's like, can you do something for me? And yes. she has that great speech where she said that they've had what they've been searching for in them all along. I don't know what's in you. You'll have to find that out for yourself. I mean, it really was beautiful. And I and I also think, you know, there's something that that whole arc evokes in the black community. You know, mm-hmm. there are a lot of folks in my family who I grew up with on the south side of Chicago who have never left the south side of Chicago Mm. because, you know, as we've seen in viral videos and our news screens, the world can be a really dangerous place. Yeah. And there's so much about neighborhoods like Harlem, other places where there's such a rich, vibrant African-American community that you just feel safe. And, you know, remember mom kind of said, you know, you've never been south of 125th Street. Hmm. And there are people who grow up in the south side of Chicago and never been downtown, never been to the lakefront. Hmm. And I think that part of what this movie is saying and part of what the I think they found in the story of The Wizard of Oz and in Dorothy is this sense of, you know, there's a bigger world out there and it needs to see you and that there's more out there for you um, that what's around. And by the way, you can always come home. Exactly. Dorothy, can you do something for me? They've had what they've been searching for in them all along. I don't know what's in you. You'll have to find that out for yourself. But I do know one thing. You'll never find it in the safety of this room. I tried that all my life. It doesn't work. There's a whole world out there. And you'll have to begin by letting people see who you really are. Everybody look around, cause there's a reason to rejoice, you see. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, This Movie Changed Me is back. When I first learned about the Mexican holiday, El Día de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead, I was so envious that Mexicans had this tradition of remembrance, of remembering their ancestors and the family members who have long died and who still live on in their memories. Yet the Day of the Dead was something that I never really understood until I saw Coco and saw the joy and celebration and the very lack of death in it. Coco tells the story of a young Mexican boy named Miguel who loves music. And yet music is the one thing that his family has forbidden him from doing because his great-great-grandfather was a musician who abandoned their family. 
But Miguel wants to enter a music contest for celebrations around El Día de los Muertos. So he ends up stealing a guitar that hangs over a legendary musician's grave. What Miguel doesn't know, though, is that by using this guitar, he's going to be transported to a different realm, the land of the dead. And this is where his adventure begins, where he must connect to his ancestors in order to return back home. For Cuban-American movie critic and writer Monica Castillo, Coco is an important reminder that we must never forget the generations that came before us. Well, I'd love to take you back in time for a minute by asking you to close your eyes for about 10 seconds, and I'll just prompt you when it's, it's time to come back from this time travel, to think about the first time that you saw Coco. Think about where you were, who you were with, and how it made you feel. And yeah, I'll just chime in when the 10 seconds are up. So what memories came up for you? You know, it's funny. When I was re-watching it, I also got a flashback to the first time I saw it. I mm. saw it at a press screening, as many critics and uh, reporters will do. A friend of mine brought me as her plus one, and I remember my eyes kind of welling up, actually, when the mariachi version of the Disney theme yes. started. Like, that's how already yes. emotional I was. I also knew, like, how rare this was. I'm a big Disney buff as well. I grew up outside of Disney World. There's no escaping Disney from Central Florida. And I just knew that, like, we didn't have a lot of, maybe I didn't, I couldn't use the words representation, and I didn't know how to exactly verbalize it. Mm. But I knew, like, there was no one like my family in the Disney canon. Mm. And this one, it's just, here we are in Mexico, like, it's not an outsider's perspective looking in. It is the perspective. Yeah. And it's vibrant, right? It's alive and it's joyous. I think that's one of the first things that strikes me, as you mentioned from the opening credits, is this is not a stereotype. Right. I don't feel at any point that we were the butt of the jokes, hmm. that this was also very welcoming, even though I'm not Mexican-American and I'm not Mexican, that I could access and see commonalities. I could, you know, relate the use of Spanglish in the movie. It feels <laughs> yes. very natural. It doesn't, I don't know if you have this problem, but as someone who's bilingual, so many movies will have the word in Spanish and then we'll translate it in English immediately afterwards. And I'm like, so you just repeated yourself. Yeah, like, that's exactly. weird. <laughs> that's not how we, we use that. Nope. <laughs> so it was nice to see and watch a movie where, like, they get that right. The The characters are pronouncing things correctly. It doesn't feel forced. Well, and also that they're casting actual Mexicans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that helped a lot. <laughs> Miguel! <gasps> ah! Abuelita! What are you doing here? Um... Alone. Doña, please. I was just getting a shine. I know your tricks, Mariachi. What did he say to you? He was just showing me his guitar. <gasps> Shame on you. Uh, my grandson is a sweet little angelito querido cielito. He wants no part of your music, Mariachi. You keep away from him. <laughs> Ay, pobrecito. 
estás bien, mijo? The first time that I saw Coco, I went to see it with my friend Eddie, who's Mexican-American, and he's talked a lot about that for him, the movie represents this idea that we need to be remembered in order to exist. And that, I mean, watching the movie, I started thinking about a lot of the things that you talked about. The grandparents that, you know, are in Colombia that I didn't really know because they weren't in this country. And and then the grandparents that I just didn't make as much of an effort as I could have because the relationship was by phone. And Mm. all these ancestors that make us who we are, who, if you don't remember, it's like they don't exist. I mean, it's such an impactful message that when I think about it, it starts to make me feel very sad. But what I love about Coco is that it kind of turns it around to also make you remember that it's not too late, right? Right. Right. So at the end, when Miguel runs back from the afterlife and is trying to get Mama Coco to remember her dad so he doesn't fade from memory, that's such like a kind of calling card for us as the audience as well to like, you know, reach out to those people, reach out to those relatives you may not have in a long time. Yeah, I definitely reached out to my mom afterwards. And then (laughs) over the holidays, after the movie came out, I took my mom and my grandmother to go see Coco. And that was really interesting Hmm. because I, I, for whatever reason, I like was a wreck throughout the whole thing. And then like my mom is not a big movie crier and neither is my grandmother. So they were like, oh, yeah, this is cute. And they were really enjoying it. And then at the very end, again, that Mama Coco scene, we were all crying. It was Mm. a shared intergenerational cry. (laughs) Mama Coco, your papa. He wanted you to have this. <gasps> Mama, wait. Remember me. Though I have to say goodbye, remember me. Don't let it make you cry. For even Look. if I'm far away, I hold you in my heart. Monica Castillo interviewed by Lily Percy. This hour, you also heard Naomi Alderman, Drew Hammond, Mark Kermode, Zaida Sherman, Seth Godin, and Michael Straut-Manis. Listen to a fuller, longer, fantastic dive into each of them, as well as others, like the New York Times film critic A.O. Scott. The movie that changed him was Ratatouille. That's all on the new second season of This Movie Changed Me. It is a podcast offering from On Being Studios, and it is a delight. Learn more, as always, at onbeing.org. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent production of The On Being Project. It's distributed to public radio stations by PRX. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. 
Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.